On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Jess Joustra about neo-Calvinism and Abraham Kuyper and more. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is neo-Calvinism? Is it right to think of Calvinism as an entire life system or worldview as neo-Calvinism seems to think? Do you think neo-Calvinist approaches to public and social involvement might be shocking to some modern-day Calvinists? What are the distinctive theological claims of neo-Calvinism? Did Kuiper think Calvinism was the only defense against modernism? And what was Kuiper's thoughts on race? And should we reject his entire program given his problems here? Is principled pluralism possible and has it ultimately failed? Is it consistent with more traditional magisterial Protestant construals or not? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and this is the London Lyceum and a place that we're all about serious thinking for a serious church and trying to cultivate sort of serious thinking. We've kind of explained it as an attempt to create or cultivate an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So what that really means is if you're new to listening, we try to be really nice and kind. Uh, we try to understand people who are different from us, who may be very different from us, and let them explain to us their views on their own terms and not ours. We want to hear the best versions of their arguments. But we also want to be very dedicated, rigorous thinkers and do all of that while not giving up our own personal confessional commitments, but we want to be happy about it. We don't want to be curmudgeons. Uh, having great confessions of faith that are old is supposed to be actually a really exciting and happy thing and make us open and kind because we realize that we don't have to be nervous and um, I guess I don't know what the word is. We don't we don't have to be insecure about what we believe. We've got it we've got it there, and so we can make friends who think differently than us. So that's really the whole point of the podcast to some degree is doing that. But we want to engage um, all the smartest people out there, and so in thinking of that, we've got someone with us today that I'm really excited to introduce you all to to. Dr. Jess Joustra, Joustra. And man, I, I blow it every time. I tell you what, I introduce all sorts of people. And sometimes people have uh, difficult names like Paul Gavriliuk, and I can somehow pull that off. And yet <laughs> here, I come here and I blow it. So Jess, I'm really excited to talk to you because uh, you've got this awesome edited book on Calvinism for a Secular Age. And if you haven't seen it, the cover's awesome. I know I'm showing it to a screen that no one sees, but I'm going to put a link in the show notes so you can click it and go find it and look at it. It is a fabulous introduction to what I think of as neo-Calvinism. So you can correct me if I'm wrong as we go on. But before we jump into thinking about all of Abraham Kuyper and all the stuff that goes on in there, tell me a little bit about yourself, Jess. Like, What, what made you decide you want to dedicate years of your life to thinking about these sort of things, these sort of topics, and then we can talk about the, the meat of the book. Yeah, wonderful. What a delight it is to be on with you uh, today. Thanks for having me. And this book, yeah, it's about Abraham Kuyper and his Stone Lectures, which were a series of lectures given at Princeton Theological, uh, or Princeton. Uh, and, you know, these were lectures that I had heard about implicitly and explicitly really my entire life. I grew up, and I'm, I won't fight you on the neo-Calvinism, I grew up within a kind of Dutch Reformed neo-Calvinist ecclesial circle, social circles, all of these things. It was just in the water. Uh, and I admit 
kind of it being in the water led me to not take it very seriously or maybe take it for granted and maybe both. Uh, and it wasn't until really uh, seminary and probably even more my doctoral work that I, I figured out that there were a lot of people that didn't grow up with the insights that I did. Uh, and when they found them, they found them really exciting uh, and really kind of life altering in some way, shape or form, uh, because in them, they found something of the fullness of the gospel that they hadn't articulated or encountered before. And that made me in some ways see my own past and my own ecclesial tradition with fresh eyes uh, and a fresh, renewed, or maybe <laughs> new excitement. Uh, and this, this book is really in some ways about unpacking some of that for another generation to say, Here's, here are some of these insights in neo-Calvinism, particularly, particularly here in Kuiper's Stone Lectures, that I think, and we think, this book was edited by my husband and I, that we think really matter uh, and really are important for Christian discipleship today. And we've noticed uh, there, there are a lot of barriers. We'll talk about some of them, I imagine, in this conversation to entering that conversation, especially from the lectures. And we wanted to both tease out where things have gone wrong and celebrate some of the real gems of, of insight that Kuiper and Neo-Calvinism more broadly continue to bring to us. That's cool. So I, for one, am not one that had neo-Calvinism or anything in the water. Um, I didn't know what neo-Calvinism—I I don't think I had heard the term Calvinism until my senior year in high school. Oh, wow. So yeah. I didn't know anything. So all of this was like <laughs> brand new to me, and I'm still learning, drinking from a fire hydrant. And I, I still remember listening to the the Grace in Common podcast with James <laughs> Eglinton and, and Grace Sutanto and others, and they were explaining neo-Calvinism, and I'm like— Maybe I am a neo-Calvinist. This is cool. I like names. So I'm going to be a neo-Calvinist. Um, Wonderful. <laughs> so before we, we, we develop the different ideas in the book, maybe you yeah. could just give me that picture of like, what are the distinctive theological claims of something like neo-Calvinism? And does that differ from Kuiper and his stone lectures mm. on down as we get to Bavink and others down the line? Yeah, wonderful. So we've said two names, and I'll just briefly uh, introduce us to these folks if if uh, they're unfamiliar. But Abraham Kuyper was um, one of the chief architects, theological theological architects of neo Calvinism. He was a Dutch theologian, pastor, statesman, uh, did a whole lot of things, um, but was one of these theological architects of Neo-Calvinism alongside his colleague, Herman Bovink. Uh, both of them lived late 1800s, early 1900s in the Netherlands uh, and were part of the reform, the, the Dutch Reformed Church, one of the branches of that, uh, of their time. And both of them contributed to this theological project. If you read something like James Eglinton's biography, you've already mentioned James, uh, you'll see that there are some places where Bavink and Kuiper do differ just a bit. Uh, but for the most part, they share this very strong theological vision and, and uh, this very strong theological commitment that comes to both um, kind of a doctrinal formulation, but also an ecclesial formulation where they bring together two, two Dutch Reformed churches uh, that come together in what's called the Union of, of 1892. So they were, they were statesmen, they were theologians, university founders, Kuiper founded the Free University. Um, they did a whole lot, uh, but their legacy comes to us as these two chief architects of neo-Calvinism. And one of the ways that we can think about neo-Calvinism is through a very small phrase, grace restores nature. Uh, 
Uh, that's, that's how someone like Al Walters, who wrote Creation Regained, a wonderful little primer into the tradition, really drills down to the essence of what is unique. And I'll get to that in just a minute. But one of the things that Kuiper wanted to push against, we see this in the lectures themselves, we see this in other places, was that the starting point for Calvinism is soteriological. Uh, he said he said in the lectures, um, point blank, you know, we there's this common perception that the dominating theological principle in Calvinism is soteriological. He wants to push back against that and not say soteriology or the doctrine of salvation is unimportant, but wants to say it's not the sum total of Calvinism. Like our day, uh, Calvinism had often been synonymous with something like tulip or the canons of Dort, right? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. These wonderful theological rich insights that ground us in this, this surety of our salvation that's given to us by God alone, by grace alone. Beautiful theological insights that have just this weight of biblical depth, pastoral comfort. But what, what, Calvin, he wanted to say, would say, and what Kuiper very forcefully said, is that's not where we begin. The starting point theologically, he said, for, for Calvinism, and as he was articulating it, he meant something like the thing that would become neo-Calvinism. It wasn't a term they coined, but it was a term they took for themselves later on. Uh, he, he wants to say the starting point is cosmological. It's God's sovereignty over everything. Yes, our salvation, but it's not only sovereign over our salvation. God is sovereign over everything. And there we start to get why and how this key insight of grace restoring nature comes about. Because they wanted to say there's a particular relationship between grace and nature that both Kuiper and Bavink really zeroed in on. And they wanted to say grace, what God is doing in Jesus Christ, doesn't stand in opposition to created reality. It doesn't supplement created reality. It doesn't parallel and not really touch created reality. But it actually comes in and restores all that is. In other words, the gospel has something to say about every aspect of life. Yes, our souls. Yes, our churches, yes, our theological doctrine, but also our, our understanding of science, our understanding of art, our understanding of farming, our understanding of parenting, our understanding of anything and everything, because that's what God's grace is and what it does. So it starts with this very creation affirming, God has made his world, <laughs> and then this affirmation of God's continued grace, God continues to uphold the orders of his creation that endure because of his grace, and then this word of restoration in the end that God will finish this project. And that kind of summative grace restoring nature, big picture of God's sovereignty undergirds really everything else uh, that we see in Neo-Calvinism. Uh, very helpful. So one thing I wanted to get your feedback on is the very first chapter talking about Kuiper and life systems. Yeah. So is it right to think about Calvinism as an entire life system or to use the terminology of worldview? And the reason I ask about the worldview question is because I've watched lots of videos of guys like <laughs> Brad Littlejohn, and they basically want to say, no, don't do worldview, do wisdom. <laughs> yeah. And I, as I think about it, I'm like, I don't know if there's just a stumbling block with using the word yeah. or if there's actually a conceptual difference here. I mean, is worldview is so, something that we want to use, like you would find in the 16th and 17th century reformers as they think about it? Is this what they're yeah. thinking too? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, 
you know, one of the things Al Walters, again, I'm bringing up his name a lot, but he is really important in these conversations, given that one of his books that's most well known is something like The Basics for a Reformational Worldview. So he uses the term, claims the term. Uh, and I want to say two things, and then I'll unpack both of them. One, yeah, I think worldview has a place. <laughs> um, but two, I think people like Brad Littlejohn's critiques also have a really important place. And I think I can say both of those things. And Walter says it this way. He says, you know, this guy that has, has written a lot about worldview, um, I actually direct a center in his name now thinking about Christian worldview, in particular reformed worldview. So I'm certainly going to still use the language. Uh, it's part of my kind of vocational bread and butter in some ways. Uh, but Walter's himself, and I would totally agree with him, says that the term has a lot of problems. Um, and we just need to, I think, accept that, that it's a term. And as terms go, all terms in some ways are limited terms. This one is a limited and potentially problematic one. But he also says if you got rid of it, you need to come up with another thing that's awfully close to it that captures the same idea. And I think we see a lot of that in something like um, Brad Littlejohn's critiques, which, again, are really good. Um, I went back and looked at his critiques just a couple days ago, and I want to say yes to really all of them uh, in he, when he kind of lays out some of these, you know, worldviews give us an a priorism, worldviews lead us to intellectualism, which is this big critique, right? Worldviews focus all on our, our heads, or as someone like Jamie Smith says, it worldviews lead to brains on sticks. Um, and I want to say, yeah, let's not do that. We shouldn't do that. We can't do that. We need to push against that. And Brad says, you know, it makes us resistant to learning. They kind of seem really self-contained, like they are the be-all, end-all, and they can lead to a kind of arrogance. And I'm not going to disagree with him on any of that, <laughs> actually. Um, but I want to say, I think the term still has merit. Um, and I think the term does not need to be understood in this kind of merely intellectual way. And one of the wonderful guides for this is one of these neo-Calvinist neo -Calvinist thinkers, Herman Bovink. Uh, his work on Christian worldview, which is titled Christian worldview, but really goes specifically into a reformed worldview, gives us a wonderfully, I think, different picture of worldview that pushes back on all of those critiques, but still embraces the term. And I will say, even perhaps a little bit cheekily, when when Little John at least writes about these things, he says, you know, a whole lot about uh, worldview and its problems. Again, I don't disagree with any of the problems that he's named, but he also praises people like Al Walters and says, maybe this is this is maybe the best we've got of this thing. And I want to say, yeah, it is. Let's let's capitalize on that and let's flesh that out. Um, and I think one of the ways that it has been fleshed out and can be fleshed out is by looking at something like Bovink's Christian worldview, and even in that. Bavink doesn't want to use the word worldview, the word worldview, he will, but he actually prefers world and life view to start pushing us towards something more comprehensive and to start pushing us towards something that's not merely just these kind of quick glasses we put on. There's two metaphors that are often used in the worldview world. Uh, one is of, of spectacles or glasses. The other is of a map. And the idea of spectacles or glasses could give the wrong impression that worldviews are just easy to slip on and slip off. And, you know, it just happens like that. And the idea of building a map says, no, this is actually a laborious process that includes careful reflection and maybe some refinement, again, to get into some of Brad's critiques that these things are resistant to learning. Bobbing's picture is not. 
Bobbing's picture gives us this kind of meticulously built map that begins to answer those central questions for him, you know, what is the relationship between thinking and being and, and how do we understand our place in the world? And then also, you know, being and becoming, becoming and acting to answer some of those big questions like, who am I? Where am I? What's the problem? What's the solution? The kind of four questions that um, people like, um, pe other people that, that think about these worldview things, I think those are from Middleton, uh, help us get at. And, and I think Bavink's concept, how he formulates it, how Walters formulates it, is worth saving, um, not because of the beauty of the word itself, uh, but because of the, I think, necessary thing it, it represents. Yeah, that's good. So another question uh, from this initial chapter, I think Richard Mao is the one who made this comment. I'm curious your yeah. appraisal of it. I imagine a lot of a modern evangelical-ish American sort of Calvinist might find this shocking. Mm -hmm. So he said uh, he was thinking about neo-Calvinism, I guess Kuiper's vision, and saying a vision for active involvement in public life that would allow me to steer my way between a, a privatized evangelicalism on the one hand and a liberal Protestant or Catholic approaches to public discipleship on the other. And that's what he was saying, I guess, attracted him to this. Mm. And I'm, I'm wondering, what do you think about that comment? Is that, do you think that is, would be shocking to a lot of people? And should they say, get over the shock, embrace it? Mm. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I mean, one of the realities is there are a lot of different kind of subgroups of reformed that mean slightly different things by that term too. Um, some people will say, you know, I'm uh, when they say reformed, they mean something like Dutch reformed and the Christian reformed, RCA, those kinds of things. There's other Scottish reformed, other people that are broadly reformed soteriologically and, and um, not really embracing some of these worldviewing components. But that problem, again, isn't a new reality that people mean different things by these terms. And there's this really interesting remark by Kuiper's colleague, Herman Bovink, when he's talking about the future of Calvinism. And I think it gets back to maybe some of this um, potential shock. When he's talking about the future of Calvinism, he differentiates between two terms, reformed and Calvinistic. And he might not use these terms like we use them today, but I think his point is really important. He says that reformed often expresses merely a religious and ecclesial distinction, this theological conception. And then he says there's Calvinism, which has a wider application, and it gives us a kind of political, social, and civil understanding of spheres, etc. And he wants to say this is, this is a, a distinction and a differentiation that has happened in his time, and I think it's one that happens today as well, that we say reformed, we mean different things. And if we're talking about reformed, to use, again, Bobbink's language, as something that's more a purely theological and ecclesial distinction, the claim that this has something to say about public life would, of course, be a little bit shocking, a little bit like, how does that fit into this system? When I'm thinking about this system, I'm thinking theologically. And other people use that term or something akin to it, like Calvinism or Calvinistic. And they want to talk about something that has a view of the world and, and life as a whole, right? This wider application. And we see that in, in Kuiper's reception, in, in the reception of Kuiper's lectures at Princeton, too. Um, he was this Dutch Reformed guy coming into another Reformed hub, right? So he was coming into Princeton. And this is old Princeton at the time, a huge Reformed hub. And this bastion of kind of reformed orthodoxy. And so you would imagine this kind of immediate kinship and immediate, you know, I get your project, I'm on about it. 
But it wasn't quite that way, even for Kuiper, because there were these two different versions of, are we talking about this theological piece that's doctrine, that is ecclesial structures, that's church governance? Or are we talking about that and a kind of political and cultural commentary and a political and cultural view? And Kuiper meant the latter, and many of the people he encountered at Princeton meant the former. And I think we see that in Bavink's kind of articulation there. And I think we might see that as some of the, the context of your question, too, that people mean by reformed different things. And one of those that's more about church governance, that's more about particular theological understandings, and in some cases, specifically soteriological understandings, would be very shocked to say, how does that, how does that translate to public life? But if you're talking about Reformed in a way, or Calvinism, in a way that someone like Kuiper or Bavink is using it and is just accustomed to using it, there would be absolutely no shock, right? Because that would be part and parcel of the whole picture. Cool. That that makes total sense. So another thing I would love you to expand on is why Kuiper thinks Calvinism is the only defense against modernism. Mm. I think that's fascinating, and I'd love to hear you tease that out. Yeah, wonderful. So he talks about this in that in that first lecture, and he also talks about it in his last lecture on Calvinism and the future, which makes sense that he would talk about how do we make sense of ourselves in, in relationship to the future. And in that last lecture in particular, he's really dour. I mean, it, the, the tone is strikingly morose, uh, I suppose. And he has this bleak assessment of the modern world. And it's not it's not entirely bleak, I should be fair to our friend Kuiper. But there is a lot of bleakness in this um, in this assessment. And he has he's looking at this modern world and he sees this state of malaise, uh, this present spiritual decline. And all of these things he says there's, you know, these wonderful and and he does here he's not very morose and he really is praising what's going on. There's these wonderful advances in things like modern medicine. There's these wonderful advances in society, but there's also this keen focus only on the material life, keeping us alive longer, giving us these new technological developments, etc. But our life, while materially seems brighter, is also dimmer because it's only focused there. It's only focused on the kind of material things of this world. And he says, to use his language, he talks about the hypertrophy of our external life results in a serious atrophy of the spiritual. And then he gets a little darker even. (laughs) And he says, the problem, especially with modernism, is that in this malaise, the malaise of modernity, and there you can hear kind of parallels to something like what someone like Charles Taylor will talk about later. Um, But in this malaise, there isn't really a cure inherent in modernism. And he says that once upon a time, you know, in a society where the gospel had had influence, there could be self-correction. People could turn to Christ, be relieved of their spiritual, what he calls degeneration that had marked their time. And he says in his time, it's actually the opposite, where once the cause of degeneration or this kind of spiritual atrophy was a seeming lack of a robust worldview and creed, that called people back to the gospel, that said, it's still here, it's still kind of in the background, let's come back to it. He says, now, the problem is that a new worldview has replaced that gospel. Modernism, which is this all-encompassing claim, has replaced what used to be very common in society in in terms of a, a kind of spiritual worldview, or in particular, in some societies, a Christian worldview. 
And so he wants to say the only thing that can counter an all-encompassing claim about our lives is another all-encompassing claim about our lives. And he says there that Calvinism is our solution. And in that, he says a couple of things about other religious uh, traditions. Uh, And one of them, he says, you know, Roman Catholicism does have an all-encompassing view. He just wants to say in, in a very Calvinist way, that's not quite the right view. Um, one of the things that Calvin and Bavink are on about is the relationship between grace and nature that they see in the Roman Catholic Church of their time that is different than this relationship between grace and nature that they want to articulate, that grace restores nature. And so he says there is an all-encompassing view, but there are some problems with that, right? One of the, one of the other key deficits that he sees is the Roman Catholicism, he says, relies too much on the church as this mediating structure between us and God and doesn't give us, doesn't kind of land us right before the face of God. And that's a big problem, he says, because he wants to say divine grace has to come to us directly. Nothing ought to mediate it. And so for him, that's not an option. And so then he looks to other Christian traditions and he wants to say there are some really good theological insights there, but they lack the full kind of life system characterization that Calvinism brings. They have things to say about church. They have things to say about doctrine, but they don't have that whole world and life view. So we can't use them there. And then he says, you know, there are other, there are other traditions um, outside of Christianity, things like Islam, that also really get this whole world and life view. But that's not the answer because that answer does not have Christ incarnate, the second person of the Trinity who is Savior and the Lord of all. And so he wants to say then, the only thing that is an all-embracing life system that gets the gospel right is Calvinism. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. Now, one area I'd love for you to walk me through a little bit too is are his thoughts on race. So I think this is a great test case to think and understand how to do history well, how to do Mm. theology well, because I think you're going to say his thoughts on race are really bad. I am. Um, yeah. And there's all sorts of like, people are just trying to figure out like, what do I do when my hero in these other areas has this great moral mm-hmm. failing and says things that are obviously wrong? Mm-hmm. What do I cancel them? Do I give them up completely? Or is there a way to still retrieve from them and still honor them and yet say, this was absolutely really bad? So just like, help me think through both of those things. What are his yeah. thoughts on race? And then what do we do when people have bad thoughts like that? Yeah, that's a really important question because so far, if I if you hear me talking about Kuiper, it sounds wonderful. And I do. I think there are really wonderful insights that Kuiper gives us into, in particular, the way that the gospel touches every part of our life, the way it matters in politics, the way it matters in cultural engagement, the way it matters in all of these things. The gospel has a word. Christ Jesus reigns as Lord over all. He articulates that wonderfully. Uh, but that's often or has been historically, where people end with Kuiper. And then if you pick up the Stone Lectures themselves, you start reading, and you might have the experience that someone like my friend Vince Bacot had, or, or you know, I know many people who have had this experience. They're turning, they're kind of flipping through the pages. This looks good. This looks good. This looks good. What just happened? Because he all of a sudden starts talking about different tribes, different races, and has a very clear understanding of racial superiority, that whites are more superior to those with African ancestry. And I want to be able to stop right there and say he was wrong. He was deeply wrong. 
and the way that has that has played out uh, in in the people who follow his line and take some of their impulses from him, there are there are points in history that that has also been deeply wrong. Using some of those insights in reception of his thoughts has been not only problematic. I think we need to say wrong, right? So he has he has a number of a number of claims about the racial superiority of people of European ancestry over people of those that are that are from African descent. Full stop. We need to say that was wrong. That was sinful. Uh, and then he has this notion of pillarization, where there's clear separation between spheres. And in spheres, that can be really good to say a church is not a school and a church is not a business and the government is not the family. Very clear kind of lines of separation there. But some people took those ideas to say not only clear lines of separation in, in, in spheres, but clear lines of separation in society. And there we might start to hear echoes of something like apartheid South Africa, which drew on and, and elaborated on. Um, I don't think the line between Kuiper and apartheid South Africa is just a totally clear-cut straight line. But I also think that we would, be, we would be fooling ourselves if we didn't say there were clear fingerprints of some of Kuiper's ideas, including polarization and racial superiority uh, in the development of apartheid South Africa. I also, and this is this is not to excuse Kuiper because it has nothing to do with Kuiper, but I also want to add there as we talk about apartheid, um, people like George Harink have done wonderful work on thinking through not only the influences of um, Dutch Reformed theology in the formation of apartheid, but also the influences of Dutch Reformed theology, especially in Herman Bovink, of dismantling apartheid. Um, that's a conversation for another day, but I think it's a really important one. But then the question is, what do we do with this, right? So we have this guy with these, these genius insights, it seems like, where he gets to, to the kind of beating heart of the gospel that says, I am Lord over all. This God who said, it is good, continues to say, it is good, not just about our souls, not just about the church, but about all of creation. And then says to this part of creation, seems to say, not as good or bad. And and I think there are a couple ways that we ought not read them first. One of the ways people read Kuiper and others like him is to simply say, ah, he was a man of his time. Yes, 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 that was bad. But everyone thought that. And so, you know, we, we just, we can't really hold them accountable. Everyone thought it. And what I want to say is everyone did not think it. Many people did, but not everyone uh, and no matter if it was cultural, culturally accepted or not, it was wrong. And he had the tools in front of him to see that it was wrong. And so one of the things I think we can't do is just excuse because of, you know, ignorance. Um, I don't think he was ignorant. And, and his colleague, um, Herman Bovink's understanding of the image of God and all of these things, I think, shows that. Um, but one of the things about Kuiper that may make his case a little bit different than others, um, I'm, I'm going to comment here specifically on Kuiper, and people are free to use those to draw inferences about everyone else or anyone else, but I'm going to specifically go to Kuiper now. When we read Kuiper himself, he says things that are just wrong. Again, full stop wrong. And, and they are not only just wrong, but they are deeply theologically problematic when, when you think about the implications of what am I, what does it mean when I'm kind of championing a racial superiority of someone? And then on the other hand, saying all of these people are made in the image of God. 
But Kuiper's legacy gets even more complex because he is really wrong on questions of race, but then also oddly self-contradictory on these questions. Um, and this is something that people like Vince Bacon, people like Jeff Liu have pointed out really wonderfully. But you read Kuiper, and one of his favorite words is the word multiformity and diversity. And so you see this man who is championing diversity, championing multiformity, suddenly when it comes to race, talk about uniformity. When before, I mean, he's written whole essays on uniformity, the curse of the modern life, and then is really suppressing diversity when it comes to, when it comes to race, buying into things like the curse of ham, all of this stuff. And so one of the best things to do, I think, with someone like Kuiper is to read them in light of themselves. And then to ask a question that Vince Bacon puts to us to say, is this deep error a dominant chord in their theology? Or is it a kind of aberrant missed, missed chord that they play every once in a while, but within the whole song, there's actually tools within, within that to counter it. There's tools within it to, to, to say this is wrong. And even within your own corpus, you can say this is wrong. And I think in Kuiper, we see that. Um, that, and this is not excusing him in any way, shape or form. I, I, I don't want to excuse him, but I do want to raise some questions of him to say, you are the one with these wonderful insights about the good of diversity. And then you say this, how does that hang together? You are the one with, with these really, really keen insights about the way God will bring together all things with this kind of glittering diversity in in Christ and, and see that as a good. And then this is what you say about humanity. That doesn't add up. And so what I want to do is not just a critique that's situated in history to say, well, it was wrong, but everyone else said it, so it's fine. Or to say, well, it was wrong, full stop, and now we shouldn't read you at all. Um, but what I want to say is we can critique you not only out in with kind of broad theological themes that we learn from other people, which we can and we should, but we can critique you with theological themes within your own corpus. And that can allow us, I think, both to be honest about what he said and to honestly assess it as wrong and to say, this is actually something that were he to have been consistent, he himself should have figured out and should have called himself out on because his own theological tool book gives him the tools to say absolutely not to this deep error. Excellent. Very helpful. Now, shifting a little bit of gears, I want to talk about the idea of principle pluralism. Mm. Is this so is this vision even possible today? Number one, has it failed ultimately? Because I mean, it's just everybody wants wants to talk about this kind of stuff. It seems like at this moment of recording, people are super interested in this question. And it seems to me a lot of people are like, this didn't work. And so then they're going and saying, look, the, the Protestant reformers, the magisterial Protestant reformers, they actually had a different vision of what the political life looks like. So I guess there's two questions. One, is it possible to do it? And then two, is this consistent with the reform tradition? Or is it a repudiation? Or maybe is it like an innovation of sorts? 
Yeah, great question. And I should put my cards on the table first by saying I'm on the board of a think tank in Washington, D.C. that is based on principled pluralism. So I do think it is possible and I think it is good. <laughs> so there are my cards on the table um, and a little plug for the Center for Public Justice in Washington, D.C. Um, but I do think it is possible. And I'm not sure it's failed, though I know some people would want to say, you know, this this simply leads to secularism or, you know, put a whole bunch of other other critiques on it. And, and I see I see the the merit of some of them. Um, and, and it is a really hard project to do. And maybe even for some, they would say a deeply unprudential project. Right. I mean, are you going to get anywhere if if you are acknowledging this deep diversity and, and being able to say, we're going to live within it um, and have everyone bring the strength of their religious convictions to the table. I mean, that's that's there's some real gamble there, <laughs> and I can see why people would be hesitant. Um, but I also think there's some real, real insights and um, important impulses in the project. And so I'll first say, you know, I I don't know that we've seen principled pluralism in action enough to be able to give an assessment that it has failed, right? I mean, there's, there's just not a lot of principled pluralists out there, though, may our tribe increase. Uh, And then, and then the question, is this consistent? I would say yes and no to that. Um, And I think Kuiper would have too. And one of the, one of the great test cases and great ways you kind of see this play out is, is in the Belgic Confession, Article 36. Uh, So Belgic Confession is part of the three forms of unity. um, A lot of continental reformed folks hold to these. Uh, And the Belgic Confession, as it originally uh, originally goes, has this in its text. I actually have it right in front of me. The government's task is not limited to caring for and to watching over the public domain, but extends also to upholding the sacred ministry with a view to removing and destroying all idolatry and false worship of the Antichrist, to promoting the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and to furthering the preaching of the gospel everywhere, to the end that God may be honored and served by everyone as he requires in his word. That was the original text. And so we might say, we we could say, there's a way that principled pluralism is deeply not aligned with that view. Uh, And one of one of the realities is also my cards on the table. I'm part of a denomination that uh, no longer has that part as as it's as as part of the official version of the of Belgic Confession Article 36. Now that's in a footnote, and we have alternative text um, that does not say those same things. That's the Christian Reformed Church in North America. But Kuiper himself was part of deep disputes over this question. And this was this, this Belgic confession question in, in particular. What do we do with this language? Because we can see a very different version of the, the church's relation to government, the church's relation to upholding the church and defending the truth of the Christian view that is not principled pluralism. And like you say, you see this in a lot of conversations today saying, well, look what the reformer said. Why shouldn't we do this? And that's not a new question, is what kind of looking at Kuiper says. This, this was going on in, in the late 1800s as well. There were deep, there were deep conversations uh, and disputes that neo-Calvinists charged, Kuiper and Bavink. Uh, Kuiper rendered a gravamen, which is a, an official kind of a registering of an official complaint with a confession to say, I don't think this is true. But one of the things why I don't want to just say this is out of line with the, the reformer's intent 
is that Kuiper himself didn't think it was totally out of line with the reformer's intent. He actually thought that he, his understanding of Belgic 36, which takes out that line, was more reflective of Calvin's own beliefs on Christian freedom, on freedom of conscience, on the relationship between church and state. He wants to say, this actually follows your logic better <laughs> to take this out. Um, and so again, there was this big debate um, and people were on both sides of this, right? So Kuiper and Bavink thinking about the, the issues or what they saw as the issues with Belgic Confession, Article 36. People like Hudemacher, who's another reformed Dutch pastor, saying, no, this is proper and trying to make sense of how to do this going forward. But one of the things I think that we see that's really interesting, and people like Matt Tuninga at Calvin Seminary have teased out some of this a bit, is that even, even John Calvin has some, some language of things like religious liberty that we don't often associate with Calvin. Um, I mean, when you think about Calvin and questions of religious liberty, that's not the first thing that comes to mind when you think about the way Geneva was structured. Um, but he does say in his, his commentary on the Pentateuch that there are spaces where, quote, the crime of impiety shouldn't be punished. He says this should be punished only if it has kind of broad communal support. Um, and so if we're in a place where this doesn't have that, the crime of imp impiety is not a punishable thing. That was, of course, not the case for Calvin's Geneva, where he said, you know, public consent has said this is true, and then we enforce it by means of the sword. Um, but he did have space a little space uh, to think about questions of religious liberty. I don't want to overstate that, but I also don't want to understate it. Matt Tuninga's work on that is wonderful. And in that, in that kind of understanding of there is a little bit of freedom of conscience, even in, even in Calvin's own view, um, Kuiper, Kuiper thinks he's being more consistent. But he is very willing to say, and very able to say, I'm doing something different, right? I'm registering an official complaint with a confession. I'm doing something that seems out of line with the traditional reformed. And he said, you may call me unreformed. That's okay. I think this is true. And I think this is a more faithful articulation of what it means to live in, in a society with people around us who are made in the image of God and who ought to choose this, who, who can't simply be compelled, right? Who, who through the work of God in their lives, turning their will can say yes to God, that that's not something that anyone can do, but God, right? And he wants to say, that's, that's a central tenet of Calvinism, that this, the work of salvation is a work of God and God alone. Um, and so an outworking of that sovereignty would say, this cannot be the work of the sword. This cannot be the work of the state because this is the work of God and God alone. And then this kind of upholding of people being made in the image of God with this freedom of conscience. Um, there's a lot more to say there, but that starts to get at it. And no, I don't think it's a failed project. And I, I, I think Kuiper has some really, really key insights there. Awesome. So I do want to ask one last question yeah. from you. What does it look like to do a Calvinistic pruning. I think that was the mm -hmm. language you used in the at the end of your the last chapter in here from you. Because and I think you kind of describe it along the lines of, you know, repristination and retrieval. The, these yeah. are the language that a lot of people use, I think, in our circles now. 
in your opinion, what does it look like? And why do you think something like a repristination is fundamentally unhelpful? Yeah, wonderful. So Kuiper uses this language too, the kind of pruning of the Calvinistic bud or blossoms to help them bud and blossom once more. And I just think that's a really beautiful and really important picture to say we are not simply regurgitating these insights as if they came down in stone tablets from on high. There are words that did that. These are not them. Um, And as we do that, we are confident that God has worked a mighty work in the people that have gone before us and that God's truth is a truth for all times and all places. But one of the things that Bavink and Kuiper model for us is this deep attention to context. And in that deep attention to context, they are not becoming relativistic. They're not saying the demands of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the claims of the gospel change from time to time, change in different times and places. But they are saying context change. And they are saying we we need to pay attention to those changing contexts and we need to speak the unchanging word of the gospel to a changing time and place. And one of the ways I think um, this is maybe best illustrated is by Kuiper's colleague, Herman Bovink, in his 1918 essay on the imitation of Christ, which is an essay that I personally love. And he talks about how, you know, we are to imitate Christ in any place, in any time. Uh, but And the virtues that Christ calls us to, the law that Christ calls us to has not changed. But the way we enact and embody those those virtues, uh, the way we apply those ideas may change in our circumstances. And again, he's not preaching relativism there, but he is saying context matters. And in this call to to restoration um, and pruning and not repristination, we are saying, A, context matters. But we're saying, B, God works through history. We don't pretend like he doesn't. And to say that God works through history means to say, it means that we are, we are confidently saying without diminishing the real influence of sin in the world, we can confidently say that God is working through ideas, through times, through places, and we need to pay attention to that. And to repristinate means that we would just forgo anything that God had done in the time between now and when we were repristinating. And I think that's another really critical insight that they bring. And the third is, is that sometimes things are wrong. Uh, the conversation we just had about principled pluralism and about Belgic 36 is, I think, a wonderful example of that. And some may quibble, maybe not just quibble, really strongly argue with me that, you know, Belgic 36 was right as it was. And why, why did your people take it out? And would love to have that conversation. But it, whether or not you agree with the specifics of that case, what we can say is, Kuiper and Bobink are saying there are places that we got it wrong and we need to take seriously not only the way God is working in history, upholding his, his good creation and continuing to show us and reveal to us his truth, but we also need to take really seriously the way sin distorts. And so as we, repr- as we prune and as we do this work of restoration, we're not only attending to the way God works in history, but we're also attending to the way humans err in history. And there are places where we've got to be able to say they got it wrong, even those within our kind of theological camp, so to speak. And Kuiper does, is, is a wonderful example of this. And I think Vince Bacot in, in our book is another wonderful example of this, right? So Kuiper says, 
Calvin and Calvin and, and crew in, in the Belgic Confession, for example, got it wrong on what the state should do as it relates to impiety. And he also wants to say they actually were inconsistent with some of the things that they also had said. And then someone like Vince, and I want to stand right with him in his line, wants to say Kuiper got it wrong. He got it wrong on questions of race. And I, if I repristinate Kuiper, I have to take all of it. <laughs> and I, and, and that would mean I don't have the possibility of him being wrong on something. And so I think, yeah, this pruning both has this steadfast assurance that God is at work in history and this stalwart claim that as we anticipate the eschaton, mistakes will happen because sin is not yet gone. And it takes both of those seriously, I think. Um, so thank you for walking us through this book. It's been tremendous. I've got my two-year-old here who obviously likes it too because he's wanted to sit in my lap pretty much the whole time. <laughs> so I'll tell you, neo-Calvinism isn't just for you. It's also for your kids. Um, <laughs> but, but thank you. Th- Jess, this has been really, really helpful to walk through some of these questions. I think you've done a really nice job of sort of explaining these things at a level that is accessible. So a lot of these books are can be a little bit more on the academic end, but I think a lot of our listeners are somewhat more on the pastoral sense, and I think this is a book that can help you too, as well as your own congregation as you think about these things. So I encourage you to check out Jess's other work. I'll link to it. You mentioned the Center for Public Justice. I'm going to go find a link to that and put that in the show notes so you guys can check it out. Um, keep up with her work. She's doing awesome stuff. She's doing it the right way. So I really appreciate you doing taking the time here, and we want to recommend and commend you in all your stuff. So thanks, everybody who's been listening. This is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.